0: This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Nota. This week's guest is Jason Kennedy, who leads the Developer Experience team at One Medical. We start this episode off by talking about his team's recent rebrand and how they've adopted approaches similar to how One Medical studies their customers' clinical experiences. We then focus on Jason's recent career move, including transitioning from a VP to a line manager role, and what some of his biggest mistakes and lessons are from his last job. We end by taking a look at his team's approach to shadowing and studying developers, as well as how they run surveys. I love the way Jason's team focuses on their customers and gets close up with developers to truly understand their experiences. There are many great insights in this episode, so we'll dive right in. I hope you enjoy listening. Jason thanks so much for coming on the show really excited to chat with you
1: yeah yeah very excited to be here thanks for having me
0: well I want to start by asking you about the the renaming of your team from engineering efficiency to engineering experience tell us how this happened
1: yeah for sure so I'll kind of back up a little bit I joined this team and I joined medical uh, last October and so I had seen a posting for an engineering efficiency team. It sounded really cool. I'd been doing platform work before that, but hadn't really got the chance to kind of dive deeper into what you know felt like a lot more developer experience type work. So, I was really excited about the team. I was excited that it had obviously already been created, so I wouldn't necessarily have to come in and sort of advocate for the you know creation of a of a team like this. So, I came in. Um, the team had been formed. Maybe four or five months before, but had only gotten like a PM attached in the last you know month or two, and it was cool. That I came in sort of right as the team was already starting sort of a like chartering exercise. So like, who are we? What do we do? What do we want to do? Things like that. So that was really cool. Got to kind of come in and see some of the things that had already been kind of put together, but um, also help you know shape a few things as well. And so yeah, obviously they had named the team Engineering Efficiency. I think wanting to focus on efficiencies, but I think as we were going through the chartering exercise and and kind of looking at the way that a couple other teams at One Medical operate, which is to focus on kind of an experience of a person. So One Medical sees patients in clinics, and so a lot of our teams are focused on like that patient experience, that visit experience, even the like clinician experience, right? Because we're writing software for them too. And so as it kind of came out more and more, we, we thought, well, if, you know, efficiency is a great thing to shoot for. But I think what we really care about is the experience, right? The development experience of these engineers around us. And so I decided to kind of make the case for let's, let's shift efficiency to experience to kind of better reflect. You know, naming is always hard, but, you know, we felt like experience kind of reflected that better.
0: It's interesting. So many developer experience teams that I meet with seem to have recently gone through or are going through this sort of charter exercise. It partly seems like it's because this is just still such undefined new territory. But I mean, what was your experience like joining the team right about when it was going through that exercise? What's your advice for other folks going through that process?
1: It was really interesting because obviously the team had kind of been formed out of folks that had either been you know, on infrastructure teams previously, or maybe even some product teams or even kind of front end platform teams. And so part of it was just kind of pulling what the folks on the team had previously been doing and kind of wanted to do or felt strongly about doing and trying to kind of put that into a more cohesive unit, right? I think what I've noticed teams like this can struggle with is being an everything team, because it is like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's the development experience. That's the whole reason why we're here, right? So it could be anything and everything. So finding a way to both be like pretty broad about, hey, we're here to drive simplicity or, you know, efficient experiences, while also adding enough clarity to say, okay, we're not focused on that. We're not focused on that yet
0: also, (laughs) I think it'll be helpful to listeners to to just give some definitions here, you know, for folks who are currently coming from or working on an infra or platform team, in your view, what's the difference in terms of focus, scope and mindset between a more typical platform team and the developer experience team?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of what we of in that in that treadering exercise kind of came up with it was really where we sit in the org and I think even kind of visually with sort of application or domain teams kind of on the top and infrastructure teams what what we actually call foundation teams at, at One Medical, I think is also a great term for the bottom sort of, of that. Um, and then we kind of sit in the middle, right? So it's not just about getting into say like the AWS console and doing things there, but it's also not about only being in the application and and doing things there, but really finding that middle ground of how can we make development easier and pave some roads, make some easier paths for people there, letting traditional teams like infrastructure focus more on the, okay, we're actually going to really make this a efficient cloud platform and things like that.
0: Yeah, so a little bit more of a, overall development experience focus as opposed to focusing in a specific tool set or platform it sounds like right i want to ask you you already touched on this a little bit how one medical as a company focuses really closely on patient and clinician experience these are your customers of course to you how has this, and I know we'll touch on this more later, but broadly speaking, how has this inspired the way your team thinks about developer experience? How does how you approach the customer experience translate to how you think about developer experience?
1: Yeah, no, I think for me, really seeing the way that we approach this patient space and clinician space in a very, what we call a human-centered kind of technology-powered way, I think is like, great, let's do the exact same with developers. It's obviously a little bit more complicated than that, but I think You know, again, there's kind of this pattern of experienced teams at One Medical that really take the time to map out their process, their experience, the steps that they go through from checking into the desk to meeting with the doctor to getting labs done to exiting the office, right, and looking for waste and improvement all along that, that path. It's like, let's do that with developers, like, let's get in and it's a huge space. So we're still in the process of doing that. We haven't mapped it fully out. But yeah, really getting into sometimes the minutiae of like, how are people putting up PRs? Like, let's watch people, let's watch them step through this process and really see what's happening here.
0: What is this? And I know we're going to talk about the full methodology later, where in terms of the point in time of your developer experience team, is this happening, this mapping out of the developer process? I mean, is this happening? as you're kind of reforming your new charter and kind of trying to redefine where you need to focus and how are you, you know, is this a months long process or is this like a one day thing? And is this being led by PMs? Yeah. Share more about this process of mapping out the developer journey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of a mix. I think, you know, like I said, it's an incredibly complex journey. And so I think we knew even spending one whole day to try and map it all out isn't going to get it. So I think over time, kind of as we've hit bigger milestones that we want to plan for, we kind of choose an area that we think, hey, this, this really deserves more attention. And then we can kind of tackle a problem more specifically and then start to kind of expand. So like the team kind of as I was joining was already really focused on the local development experience um, around our monolith. And so that was kind of the, okay, let's, let's really try and map out these experience in this process really well, knowing, okay, at some point, yeah, we're gonna get to continuous deployment and like how the deployment process works, but let's not pay attention too much to that right now. Really helps scope down so that we're not just completely overwhelmed. So we do kind of a bit of both. Let's do it over time, but then also try and carve out, okay, let's spend a bigger chunk to talk about this in particular.
0: Makes sense. I'd love to know what does the developer population look like at Web Medical. As you're thinking about mapping out the developer journey, looking for opportunities, are you doing this? You mentioned like local development. I mean, are you doing this across a set of different personas, whether they're mobile developers or cloud development?
1: Yeah. So I think overall, we've probably got I think it's somewhere around 150 engineers. I could be a little off on that. But we've got a very large monolith that kind of affects, you know, a really large portion of that. And so it makes sense that even kind of before I came in, that was a pretty obvious initial, okay, let's start with this because it's got some of the widest impact. But then we also, yeah, we kind of very clearly know and and call out, hey, we're not really addressing our mobile developers right now, which to be honest, kind of sucks. You know, we kind of know that, hey, given the size of our team and just the effort involved, like we can't do much there But over time, yeah, we're trying to kind of identify, you know, we've got departments that are more patient-facing, we've got departments that are more clinical, software-facing, so we'll use some of that to kind of identify, okay, what improvement are we doing that's going to have a bigger impact on this side of engineering versus, you know, the other side of engineering, or hopefully both.
0: What have you found to be the hardest part of doing this mapping exercise? I imagine figuring out just kind of how you're going to break the problem up, both from the persona standpoint, but then when you're actually doing the mapping, how do you break down the process is probably pretty challenging. Then I imagine actually turning this information into something that's useful for your own teams. So I'm just speculating here, but what's been the biggest challenge or hardest thing to get right in your view?
1: Yeah, I think it's been daunting to figure out at what granularity we really want to go down to. I've watched, you know, some of the folks on my team, like I said, put up a pull, you know, request. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of steps here. Not all of them are ripe for, oh, we can really improve this, but I think it's just kind of daunting to think about like, yeah, there are a lot of very small steps that happen. And then starting to understand there's probably a lot of small variance even in how all of these different people do it. One of the folks on my team uses Vim really heavily. She might be one of the few. We've got a lot of folks using VS Code, a lot of folks using RubyMine. So it's like even thinking about, okay, how does someone commit and then move to a pull request could be fairly different, even though it's really the same outcome. So I think just kind of the daunting, okay, yeah, what do we really want to focus on here? And what do we think would make the most impact? Because it would be the most kind of shared part of that experience.
0: Makes sense. Well, I'd love to transition into talking about career stuff because before Web Medical, you were the VP of platform at another company. I think career transition progression in the DevX platform space is still kind of a, you know, not it's so new. Like it's a new topic. So it's interesting to cover. One of the changes for you was going from a VP role previously to more of a line manager role now. Share a little bit about your experience going through that change, the reasons around it, etc.
1: Yeah, it was a really, really interesting change for me, for sure. I'd kind of grown up in that previous org, really just from an engineer, kind of all the way up to uh, VP, which was super fun, lots of growth, lots of breadth of growth, right? I spent some time on the product engineering side, leading teams. And then as I was kind of discovering my love for all things platform shifted into kind of that more leadership role on the on the platform side. And it was great. But, you know, certainly one of the things I, I tell people about even management and then certainly moving up into leadership is you get further and further removed from where the work is sometimes really happening. Right. And it's a much more indirect leadership, which I think is a fun challenge in its own, but it is very different. And so while it was, again, a lot of fun to lead quality and infrastructure and core platform and kind of all of those combined. Yeah, there were a number of things that I was like, oh, yeah, I can't have as direct impact over some of these particular things. So as I was leaving that company, certainly, you know, one of the things that I kind of wrestled with was, I think there's kind of this cultural thing about moving up into the right constantly with your title, with your salary, with your you know career. And so there was yeah, I think being honest, a lot of myself that was like, ooh, I don't, yeah, I don't know how I feel about moving, quote unquote, backwards in my career, even taking a director role. It was just hard to get out of that mindset of like, this feels like going backwards. But in truth, there's only so many leadership roles also, right, like statistically, it can't happen for everyone to like get to a VP role and then just stay there forever. Like this is not gonna happen, right? And I think there's a lot of great conversation around like manager to IC and back again. But I think even the kind of leadership back to line management. I don't I don't know if that's something we talk enough about. But yeah, I found this opening at one medical, I think was just really drawn to like, oh wow, yeah, this is a company that's already invested in this being a team. And I was like, I think this would really give me a chance to dive much, much deeper into. The kind of depths of developer experience and give me a lot more opportunity to be hands on well as as hands on as managers are but you know
0: <laughs> yeah, i really appreciated your point about how there's conversation about the transition from manager roles back to ic roles but not as much about upper leadership back to line manager It's awesome to hear your story and hear how it's been a refreshing and invigorating transition for you. And you just also touched on how one of the things that attracted you about One Medical was that they already had this committed investment and belief around developer experience and having a team around it. I know at your previous role, you tried or did at least get a team, a DevEx team yeah. spot up. I mean, maybe share with listeners. I mean, it's, I'm reading between the lines that I'm guessing it was harder to get that buy-in at your previous job maybe share advice with listeners. It was just your experience kind of going through that.
1: Yeah, it was a little difficult to get that spun up previously. As your company is like going through all of that growth, I think it falls into that same bucket of kind of technical debt where like, yeah, everybody's aware that this is something we should address, but priorities come in, the market changes, all of those different things put pressure on creating a team that I think, at least where we are today, isn't as obvious for folks. I think, leadership certainly recognizes the need for efficiency. You know, I've heard that repeated in several different companies now about like, hey, we're getting really big. And it feels like things are going slower, you know, and sometimes there's things to back that up. And sometimes there's not, but it kind of makes sense from just a systems standpoint, right? Like things things are going to slow down. But there's still kind of that, like, how do we actually address that? And I think because of the way that orgs are typically set up, there's Not just an obvious like, oh, here's exactly how we're going to do that. So it takes some convincing that, hey, let's pull often your maybe most tenured or like senior engineers because they know the most about what's broken in order to really focus them on like changing things in your process.
0: Yeah, I love that insight and the challenge of spinning up Debex teams in real companies with pressures of the market and business. It's always interesting to hear about. Platform engineering and developer experience are still new. They're not widely accepted everywhere as an investment that needs to be made. And I'm curious now that you're kind of on your second go round with this. You mentioned in book, by the way, at the beginning of the conversation, that would love to for you to share thoughts on that. But what are some of the distinct ways at a high level in which the way you're thinking about these problems has changed since your previous job?
1: So... Yeah, I've really taken what feels weird to maybe say at first a very like customer service approach to kind of thinking about how we do developer experience. Customer service can kind of bring up a lot of different thoughts of like IT support or even just regular support that we all know of, you know, getting on the phone. You're like, yeah, that, call that doesn't sound fun. Like I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to create just another call center team within engineering that just does nothing but field problems and fix things. But yeah, a couple different influences kind of coming in. So it was actually uh, Jasmine James on one of your previous podcast episodes talked about it was the Disney book about their own kind of customer service ethos. I read that and yeah, just immediately saw so many connections to like, this is how we can think about what our developers are doing, right? Thinking about waiting in lines or you know various things like that that it's like, oh, yeah, These are great kind of one to one comparisons. And so really kind of digging into, okay, how can we take a much more empathetic, really customer service minded approach to like what are developers actually doing and how they care about their own experience and then how that translates into like how efficient they can actually be after that.
0: Were there any other parts of that book, uh, the book around how Disney approaches customers that you feel were particularly relevant to your work?
1: Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed out of that book was kind of Disney's approach to creating magic to them. Well, and maybe to really magicians in general, uh, magic isn't magic. It's just a lot of very intentional steps used to create this joy and experience on you know the other side. And I, I really kind of fell in love with that concept because I was like, I've never met anyone who says that their development experience is magical. That's just not something that people say. Um, <laughs> but what if we could do that? You know what if we could really get people to think, dang, how cool is that, right? I was actually talking with some folks recently and things like getting really quick ephemeral preview test environments. They're like, wait, how did that happen? Like it really does almost feel like magic, even though on the back end it was just it was just a very intentional like we set this up on the back end and this was something that we can you know kind of provide to developers. But I think, yeah, this notion of like, how are we creating like magic, which I think is joyful, which I think really goes to that overall sentiment of what you're doing for your developers.
0: I love that. That is a sort of inspiring North star. And I was just laughing because I feel like the only time I've heard magical experience pertaining to development tools is from like product marketing, <laughs> from, from DevTool vendors. Yeah, trying, trying but to certainly sell, yeah. You hear it. certainly much more of the opposite is typically the reality for developers. Whenever I speak to someone like you who's moved on from a previous role, I love asking them what their biggest mistakes and lessons were. And when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that one reflection is that you feel in your previous role, you may have fallen into the trap of overly focusing on the Dora metrics a little bit. Can you share a little bit more about that experience?
1: Yeah, so I think, yeah, I fall into... Probably a pattern of of a lot of other folks really kind of falling in love with like the DevOps movement and really getting into things like DevOps Handbook, Accelerate, all of those other things. I think a lot of my kind of experience with platform did start with a very kind of infrastructure minded and then kind of DevOps approach. And so, yeah, the door metrics were awesome. We're like, sweet, let's figure out how to do this, you know, and figure out how we can use GitHub and Jira to get it all in the system. We got it into Looker so like anybody could take a look at it. And I think certainly one of the biggest positives there was I think that gave us the ammunition to really focus heavily on uh, continuous deployment and say, like, this needs to be one of our biggest focuses, not only because of how it affects the metrics, like we can use the metrics to measure it, but how I think this really goes to, I don't know if I probably would have said developer experience at that time, but I was thinking like, this hurts developers to not be able to deploy quickly, right? And so like what are we what are we really doing to people to say, cool, I know you're done, but if you could wait a couple of days before that gets to production, that would be great. So I think I think that was a big positive, but I think over time it just started to lose some of its signal, right? It became a little bit more noisy because I think you've got things like cycle time that just don't always fit in with say other like infrastructure or platform teams, or even just regular product teams that just kind of go through ups and downs of like, hey, we're really busy on this on this one thing and it's going to affect the metrics in a particular way, or we're heads down on this other thing. And so there's always kind of that context that you have to bring to the metrics and the metrics can't be understood completely on their own. You know, like what does a five day cycle time really mean? Is that is it good? Is that bad? Like for one team it could be fantastic. For another team it could be horrible. So kind of coming into one medical I really haven't been focused on too many like real particular metrics. Uh, we've kind of been focusing a lot more on the kind of surveys and kind of sentiment and using that approach rather than going, say directly to something like Dora.
0: Well, that piece you mentioned about how you can cycle time in five days, is that good? Is that bad? It's I was, again, laughing in my head a little just had a conversation uh, for this podcast that'll go out in a week or so with some folks at Google who who talked about the exact same thing, how they were tracking all these different objective metrics, but literally, these metrics don't mean anything. <laughs> if you can't say whether they're actually good or not good. And they talked about how the only way to actually know if they're good or bad is to go talk to people and get more of that qualitative side, the human side of the experience. And so what you should resonates. And of course, later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about the different methods you're using to get that feedback. Before going there, Another mistake, not really a mistake, but but more of a lesson and a challenge, something that you mentioned you're still wrestling with today is ownership. Share with listeners what you mean by that and what the tricky, hairy problem around it is.
1: Yeah, I think if I was paid in the amount of times that I said ownership over the last five or six years, I would be paid a lot. So I think, yeah, kind of going back to my previous company, certainly one of the things that we dealt with as we were going through Really heavy growth and then working kind of with a primary monolith was okay, how do we how do we manage the maintenance that that needs to continue? And how do we manage potentially pulling out services out of the monolith and going that direction? But there was kind of this question of, okay, as we start to pull things out or as we create a user service and then kind of set it to the side, like who who actually owns that? If it breaks who's kind of on the hook for helping resolve it. And I think the difficult thing is often the business is moving so fast and teams kind of shift domains or focuses that you end up like creating things and then you take away the support completely. I've seen that in a couple of different instances where you're like, cool, we've got this service and absolutely no team that would really like prioritize fixing it or just, you know, continuing to maintain it. And so it's certainly more in kind of that socio-technical side of problems. But, you know, we've found that it really does contribute to kind of higher and higher like cognitive load. You know, you've got engineers that are like, oh, this thing is breaking, but I don't know who knows anything about it to talk to them. Or maybe you do know who it is, but they're like, hey, I'm super heads down on this like number one P minus one problem. And I can't really help you right now. So like, you're just gonna have to figure it out. And so like you said, still kind of struggling with that. I think, you know, unfortunately, don't don't have any silver bullets. But uh, if any listener is struggling with that, know that, yeah, it's a problem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no silver bullet answers from my side either. So definitely a topic that we should continue to explore. Just a few minutes ago, you, you touched on how you've moved away from metrics and focusing now more on the qualitative side and really understanding the customer. One way you do that is this practice, and I I may (laughs) butcher the pronunciation, you you call it Gemba, right? Uh, And this is really cool. I mean, you know, I've talked to other teams that have done some shadowing, some user interviews to understand developers, but but this practice of Gemba sounds like a bigger, more official sort of methodology that, that goes beyond just developer experience at one medical. So can you start by sharing a little bit about the origins of, of this practice and, and then how you're applying it today.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, gimbo was not something that I'd heard of before coming to One Medical. And I'm actually not sure I can probably point to the exact origins at, at One Medical, but it is something that, yeah, company wide, really from kind of day one in orientation, is something that's, that's really emphasized. And the way that it kind of shows up at One Medical is, you know, we run these kind of primary care clinics. We've got patients seeing doctors on a regular basis. And again, we're very focused on that human-centered, really empathetic experience, right? And so Gemba is kind of what we set up as a whole company that we encourage people on a regular basis to actually go shadow that experience, right? Or some small part of that experience, obviously with consent of both the doctor and a you know a patient if they're involved. But it's really cool because yeah, it really kind of forces that see the effect of what you're doing. You know, we're writing software that patients are using, we're writing software that clinicians are using, but let's go see how that is actually being used. So backing up, Gimba is a Japanese term for the actual place. So it's kind of the actual place where the work is done. So let's go to where the work is actually being done, look at it, see it, observe how it's being done. Kind of going back to that process mapping, it's, it's not just sitting in a back room thinking like, oh yeah, the customer checks in and then they go sit down and they do this, right? It's actually watching, recording, looking for those, you know, waste and improvements there.
0: Well, I'm actually Japanese, so now I feel like an idiot for, (laughs) but um, can you share a little bit more about how this is actually tactically implemented? I mean, like, can you share an example of like one such initiative or session, if you will, uh, where you're actually doing this uh, on your team?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So obviously, we, we on the team are, you know, encouraged to do, I won't say actual Gimba sort of. Gimba with patients. But yeah, my team really kind of took this like, hey, our our customers are actually our engineers. So let's go do Gimba with our engineers. So we keep kind of a sign up of like, hey, if you're willing to have someone shadow you for you know an hour or so, let us know. We're also kind of in the course of collecting surveys. And if we notice maybe someone's having real trouble with something in particular, we're also to use that as an opportunity like, hey, can I book some time with you and, and actually watch you experiencing this issue or error? But then we approach it in the same way. Let me watch you through the steps of actually creating a pull request from like, show me what Git commands you're writing on the command line. Show me how you open up Chrome and go to GitHub and create it from there. Or show me how you you create it in a different way. And then looking for those. Ooh, yeah, you do a lot of different steps in order to open this PR. Like, let's, let's talk about like, I think we actually know some easier ways to do it so we can get some localized improvements there but then we can also start to think okay how can we as a team take some of these broader themes and start to kind of work on them as a more first class kind of initiative of the team
0: i love this a lot a follow-up question i have is so it sounds like you're able to offer some localized suggestions, as you mentioned, but then there's a lot of probably takeaways and sort of research findings, right, that you've come to an understanding of. How do you what's the process on the back end or or the follow up? Like how and where do you guys log and report this stuff? Where does it sort of get triaged? And is this like a PM that's doing this or are these just happening led by your engineers or EMs?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a mix. So we do have a PM um, on the team that I think kind of primarily collects a lot of this stuff. But certainly uh, we've got some really senior folks on the team that, yeah, after a Gimba session, they're like, hey, I noticed kind of one part of our development script that is like really tripping people up. And it's pretty quick. Um, I'd say maybe 75, 80% of the time, maybe more, we... It almost immediately create a Jira ticket and like pull it into the board. And then, and, you know, somebody works on it because it's often, it's kind of little things here and there. And then we kind of reserve, you know, a few of those for like, hey, what if we do something a little bigger here? But a lot of times, yeah, it's just, well, hey, let's just pull it into the board and uh, we're doing Kanban versus Sprint. So like, yeah, let's just do it right now. And then we make sure to ping that developer and say, hey, I think, I think we've actually fixed a little bit of this. Do you want to chat again or do you want to try it again? And then if it kind of goes to a larger, you know, we'll, and I all of engineering, hey, if you've been struggling with this problem, here's how you can resolve it, which is cool.
0: Yeah, it's so cool to hear this, because I think one of the things that probably gives people hesitance to do these types of very personal user research or shadowing sessions is... I think the assumption that they're going to find things that they can't fix or do anything about. And in your case, sounds like this surfaces lots of paper cuts that you're able to plug right into your backlog. And was that surprising to you a little bit? Like, did you kind of go with the expectation that you'd find things that were bigger and more systemic?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I had maybe not necessarily like a pessimistic view, but sort of the view that, yeah, I do think there are a lot of paper cuts and a lot of smaller things that despite us asking for feedback a lot, just really aren't going to surface. People are just like, oh yeah, I know that's a thing. And so I'm not going to say anything about it. So I think my, yeah, maybe, maybe hope or hypothesis was like, yeah, we're actually going to uncover a lot of a lot of little things here and there. I think in terms of the kind of larger systemic ones, just, you know, putting more and more themes together and noticing like, hey, yeah, we keep making adjustments to our kind of development script let's really think about how we're doing this overall because there could be something that we're missing and so we've got folks that certainly will bring us their own ideas for solutions hey what if you try this we're like yeah yeah let me think about that but if we start to see more and more people struggling with that then yeah let's carve out some work on here
0: well again i love the way you guys are approaching this and i think this example is one i'll personally point a lot of people to in the future in addition to the Gimba practice, the, the practice of shadowing and your general customer focus approach, that you also run a set of surveys to give you continuous insights into pain points developers are experiencing. First, I want to just go into exactly what these different surveys are then, and I want to kind of go into the backstory a little bit more. So to start with, one of the surveys that you run is a weekly Slack poll. So uh, tell listeners how you design this, what it's for, how it works.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was really our way of trying to get a pulse on like over time, what are people really struggling with? And hopefully giving folks a more immediate way to kind of give us feedback. And so yeah, it's a Slack poll on Fridays. I think we do it at like 1pm Central or so. So about the middle of the day on Friday. And it's one question, what affected your development experience this week? And we throw in a number of kind of base responses like issues with local development, problems with flaky tests, various things that we probably know are things. And so giving people kind of just the easy, like, oh, yeah, I'll just click a few of these and say, which of these affected me, but obviously also a way for people to say something else affected them, like, hey, I keep forgetting that I need to put dash dash local on this one command, you know, it keeps it keeps tripping me up. And that's really cool because we can look for kind of spikes over time. For instance, there was this uh, there was this one problem. we had seen this come in in uh, kind of a number of different channels because I don't think anyone knew how to solve it. But engineers were really annoyed that they had to log in to the AWS SSO uh, command line. What felt like constantly to them? They're like, I do this multiple times a day. It never seems to be logged in. I don't get it. And we had gotten that question. And I think, honestly, we had kind of punted it to like infrastructure at first because like, I don't, I don't think we can affect the setting and the infrastructure kind of punted it back to us. We're like, yeah, no, we can't change it. And it's like, turns out there is a, like, there's a finite limit in AWS as a whole. We're like, yeah, I guess we can't do it. And we actually closed the ticket. But over time, we kept seeing this come up. And so, yeah, kind of through the poll, we're like, let's go pick somebody and go figure out like, OK, when is this really happening? And so one of those kind of ad hoc Gimba sessions, we're like, Oh, this is actually happening every time someone wants to start the monolith server locally. we're like, I don't know if we need to do that. Like, that doesn't seem right. And so, again, quick ticket, let's figure out where people are having to log in, just just because they're starting the server, we realize like, oh, yeah, like that makes sense for when it's in staging and production and starting up and needs to go fetch some stuff. But locally. Yeah, you really should be good. And so it was a really pretty quick fix to like, let's just remove that from kind of this critical path of starting up the local server. Then via the weekly poll, we could see like, oh, we had this spike of like, oh, you know, SSO is really getting in my way to basically zero after that. We haven't gotten that complaint almost at all. So that was, that was a really cool win for us, I think.
0: You mentioned that you are able to kind of track the trends in this survey month over month. Can you provide a little more detail into what you're actually measuring? Is it the frequency in which certain things are being selected as pain points? Or is there other ways you're kind of quantifying this data?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty simple just kind of frequency right now. And even, I mean, given obviously the kind of number of responses we get week to week, which is only maybe some small percentage of folks, um, we start to aggregate it yeah, on a more kind of month-to-month basis and see that, yeah, hey, problems with local development seem really high still. Okay, let's figure out what we're, what we're not doing well there or the SSO issue dropping off. But then, yeah, sometimes we'll be surprised by like lately flaky tests seem to really be coming up in, in sort of the rankings of, of kind of frequency. So, okay, cool, let's think about what efforts we could really be doing there, and if there is anything that we could do there.
0: Moving on to your other survey. So in addition to this weekly continuous poll, you run a quarterly MPS survey. Share with listeners how this survey works.
1: Yeah, so this is fairly new for us. We've only run it twice. The second instance was actually just a week or two ago, but yeah, this kind of came about as like wanting to look for kind of overall sentiment. We're getting some of the the week-to-week changes, but how are people feeling overall? So kind of using that more, I guess, E-NPS, employee NPS kind of style, like, hey, how much would you recommend your development experience at One Medical? And then we also tack on a question, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about your development experience? Which I'll talk about actually how we think we might want to change that. But what's been cool, yeah, so far is like, yeah, people will just tell us like, hey, get rid of this or add more services or I want a one-click development environment. So that's been really cool, certainly to see the kind of overall sentiment, which is actually very low, but I think kind of what we expected, to be honest. But a lot of pretty neat insights into like, yeah, if we just say, hey, what do you want different? You know, it's been, it's been really interesting to see what people come up with. And so our second iteration just a couple of weeks ago, a couple kind of different challenges because we actually had less participation, but a better score. But also a couple new themes and then a couple kind of existing themes. So I think you know we weren't confident like oh man this is really going to help us immediately. You know we're we're hoping for kind of that trend over time certainly. But yeah, it's given us some interesting insights so far.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I was laughing with uh, if you had a magic wand because I was <laughs> oh there's that Disney influence coming into play again, but I mean, one thing I would share is it sounds like you're early on in this journey with the larger quarterly survey. And in that conversation I was referring to earlier with Google, they actually talked about how it took them a long time to establish a quarterly survey program and grow it in terms of participation, value, buy-in from the rest of the organization. So it definitely seems like it's a bit of a journey. I want to ask you, well, first of all, a little more tactical detail. I mean, you mentioned sentiment was low. Like, what's the thing you're measuring specifically? Is it that EMPS around the developer experience? And yeah. you were saying a, And when you say low, earlier we talked about how just because you have a number, is it good or bad? <laughs> like, in this case, how are you coming to view it as bad? Yeah, I think the
1: first NPS score that we had, yeah, in Q1 of this year was maybe minus 30 or around, around minus 30 or so. The most recent one was, I think it was minus 20. So still, I guess, yeah, kind of low from the NPS way of thinking about that, right? You've got more detractors than the others. But I think our kind of hypothesis going in, you know, we sort of asked everyone on the team, hey, do you want to pick, you know, what you think the score is going to be in Everyone had a pretty a pretty low hypothesis, a pretty low guess, and I don't know exactly where that comes from. Maybe just kind of as developers, we know like, yeah, developers like to think that everything can be better. There's kind of always something that's maybe wrong, but I think you know we were still surprised at how many positives really really came in. A couple of people, you know, in their magic wand said, actually, I don't, yeah, I don't think I would change that much, which is cool. <laughs>
0: Well, I can tell you, I do a lot of research on kind of the industry data around developer sentiment. And one thing I would say is that the benchmarks for MPS that exist for customer experiences, I think, don't necessarily apply to (laughs) developer sentiment. So while you called your score low in absolute terms, I would, without knowing the specifics, I would imagine that your scores really aren't that low compared to the industry data and averages out there.
1: And that's where too, I think we're, yeah, we're not hanging too much on that, on that individual score. I think, I think we kind of care more about, yeah, certainly the direction over the next couple quarters and then kind of understanding a baseline because yeah, maybe this is actually a really good baseline, depending on how you, how you think about it, but also looking at We can see the lower detractor score combined with, you know, particular magic wand feedback. It's all anonymous, but it still kind of gives you that. Okay, someone really rated us low and they said the biggest thing that they care about is like a one-click development environment. Okay, so that's having a really big effect on their... Score maybe, but then looking at someone with like a seven or an eight, and they say, Oh, I wish we had you know less flaky tests. Okay, so maybe the flaky tests are a problem, but you know, to them, it's not really contributing as much to like an overall bad experience.
0: Yeah, this last point you just made is so interesting because it's not just the existence of problems, it's like the magnitude of those problems, which is usually partly a reflection of that person's expectations, right? Like their previous Mm -hmm. experiences their seniority, their role, the tasks they work on. So we talked about like, oh, you have to contextualize metrics earlier and like the survey data is the same way, but it it almost comes with this context that you have, it's like <laughs> the opposite, right? It comes baked in with context and you have to like reverse engineer it to like understand why why something is, is coming in the way it is. I wanna ask you, I think it may be kind of, it may be obvious to you, but you started with one survey. You have two surveys now. Like if someone else were thinking about surveying, like, would you advocate them doing both? Like, why do both of the surveys simultaneously?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It was just kind of talking about this sort of idea with my PM this week, because I think one thing that we're concerned about is kind of that survey fatigue, right? Are we getting a drop off in responses because of that? Are we getting a drop off in responses because it's summer and more people are just on PTO? Like what's really contributing to that? So I think I think we are trying to be careful not to kind of overload that. If I had to give advice, I'm still a big fan of kind of the weekly. I think it's, despite it being more frequent, I think our hypothesis and hope at least is that it's a regular feedback opportunity that people know about. They see it every week. They don't necessarily have to participate every week, but I think they know it's there. I think even the the quarterly one, you know, we've only done it twice. I don't think people are as used to it yet. They don't know that it's coming again the next quarter. So they're not really, I think, thinking enough about it. Whereas, yeah, hopefully the weekly is kind of that like, oh, yeah, I really did have an issue. It's Thursday. I'm going to remember tomorrow to, you know, put this in the poll.
0: You've touched on participation rates, survey fatigue stuff already. But, but taking a step back, like in general, what are the biggest challenges with surveys in your experience so far?
1: I think... Yeah, something something you kind of alluded to earlier which is kind of the impact of a you know particular response, right? We might be getting a particular response for say like testing testing with better data that seems to come up often but really figuring out okay we get like one of those responses every week is that indicative of a Smaller problem that's localized either to maybe like one engineer or just one team, um, or is that indicative of something bigger? But um, you know, not enough people are, are are really kind of jumping onto that to say, "Hey, I have that. I have that same issue." And then I think just uh, yeah, the granularity of it. We started with a kind of problems with local development as a, an option which i think at first sounded good because we were working on local development now over time one of the things i'm thinking is like that feels very broad now and like there's a lot less responses is that indicative of this not being yet yeah, granular enough or is you know or is it a result of us actually doing things to improve and so it's not as big of a problem so i think yeah still kind of like how do we really understand the data and kind of the granularity that it gives us
0: yeah yeah that second problem that you're touching on here is super interesting yeah how, how do you i mean naming comes into play <laughs> how do you break down the problem so you're asking about the right things in the right way at the right level of detail where it's people can respond but then it's actionable mm-hmm. for your team to interpret yeah it's really uh fun problem as I'm sure you're finding so fun to hear about your approach to it Jason it's been great hearing about your experiences at what medical and the work you're doing and the culture there around being focused on the customer in general thanks so much for coming on the show I think listeners are really going to enjoy this one
1: yeah yeah thanks so much for having me it was a great conversation
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find detailed show notes and other content at our website, getdx.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider rating our show since this helps more listeners discover our podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode.